chapter 5. We begun the <coughs> series on or this study on the um, Sermon on the Mount. Last week we talked about the Beatitudes. And so this week we're going to be looking at some issues regarding Jesus' relation to the law and the prophets. <clears throat> Last week we sang a song that said, Redeemed, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It. And one of the lines in it said, which I was thinking of putting for the title up here, was the king in whose law I delight. But then there's another song that has to do with redeemed. Christ has redeemed us once for all. It says, free from the law, O blessed submission. And so both are very true in the scriptures. And this uh, today we're going to be talking about Christ and his relation to the law and the prophets. I remember <clears throat> many, many years ago, uh, speaking on Romans chapter 9, and I called Brian up and I said, man, this is a tough one. <laughs> this has to do with God's sovereignty and and uh, free will of man issue, and he told me, he says, when you're on the subject, on the passage, preach the passage. And so today we're going to preach the passage in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Well, let's ask the Lord's help in uh, understanding as well as in speaking. So bow with me in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we come before you. We want to worship. We want to know your presence. We want to know your hand upon us. And we're a needy people. We are your people. We are people in the kingdom. We have uh, been born again, and so in order to be in the kingdom, we have to be born again. As <coughs> Nicodemus found out, and so as your children, as being in the kingdom of God, uh, ones have learned to be poor in spirit, learned to mourn, learned to uh, learn our need. Lord, we will never um, get away from that, and we should never. So we come to you asking you to teach us, to speak to our hearts, to fill us with courage and boldness and uh, hope and a message for those who are lost as well who are outside this kingdom of God so we thank you for your promise to do that we thank you that you hear us and uh, so speak to us through your word in Jesus name, Amen <clears throat> so Jesus has been introduced by Matthew's gospel as the promised Messiah and King his lineage and right to the throne was detailed in the first chapter. We have all the lineage. We saw the heralding of his proximity by John the Baptist and his signet declaration, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Then we had the further confirmation of his identity when he was baptized. And the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and the voice from heaven declared, stating, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. And then his initiation into the conflict with the usurper 
of the rulership over this world was staged and rebutted in a 40-day fast and confrontation that sent the devil on his way empty-handed. And Jesus then begins to teach and heal, again reiterating what John the Baptist had said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then a band of men are chosen to be his disciples and to learn from him and to be his representatives. The Sermon on the Mount is now a compendium of requirements and instructions for those who would be part of his kingdom. Some have labeled this kingdom an upside-down kingdom because it's so counterintuitive. For instance, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And yet his constituents, though ridiculed and maligned, were in reality the salt and light of the world. We saw that last week. So after dealing with the character and attitude of those in his kingdom, he then turns to a standard of righteousness that he has given many years prior to his servant Moses and the subsequent prophets. No kingdom will get far without having some standard of operation. We call them standard operating procedures in most organizations. So let's look at the passage here, and uh, let's just... Uh, So let's look at the, I'm just going to break this down. I'm going to read the, read the passage first, and then we can see. Um, <clears throat> so this is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I've broken this down in three sections. First, Christ, his confirmation of the law. Talk about an unthinkable consideration, a purposeful affirmation, and a durable declaration. And then in uh, verse 19, it says... It talks about his disciples, anyone. So there's a dismissal or an adherence of the law, breaking, disapproval, keeping, approval. And then lastly, we look at Pharisees and their false dependence on the law. Your righteousness, God's righteousness, and entrance requirement. Perhaps the way <clears throat> in which John the Baptist nailed the scribes and Pharisees when they came to check him out and had opened the possibility in some of the disciples' minds that Jesus was going to set up a different standard of operating procedure than the one they had grown up under. It's interesting. It's interesting that Jesus intercepts that very question by the words, do not think. 
that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. So there's this unthinkable consideration. Don't think this. Were they considering that possibility? Did John the Baptist tirade against the Pharisees make that a consideration? You brood of vipers, wrath to come, and it acts at the root of the tree. Some might have welcomed that thought, while others would have serious reservations. I'm sure if there were an, if a Pharisee present, they would have been stretching their ears to hear the answer to that question. But it seems that even in the church today, there are many who wonder about that very question. I believe Jesus sets the record straight from the starting line for those who would be in his kingdom. So let's look at some of the components of his response to that question. Before we do, one of the exemptions that some would profess is that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has no bearing on the church of God today. That thought would immediately exclude us from whatever Jesus would say next. It would imply that we probably would be excluded from everything else he says on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' words to Nicodemus would not be applicable either when he says, unless you are born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God, right? And it seems strange that after Jesus' res resurrection, Luke says in Acts 1.8, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And Paul, he must have had a mental lapse at the end of his life when he said, boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And to the churches of Galatia, he said, I warned you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I do believe we can accept what Jesus says here is applicable and relevant to us today. We are part of his kingdom because we have acknowledged and bowed the knee to Jesus the King. We have entered his dominion of light and truth. And one day we will stand before him when he physically returns to this earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This will be when the kings of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. In the meantime, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, it's not only an unthinkable consideration, but it is a purposeful affirmation. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, this is a pretty strong statement. We've already seen Matthew's tenacious and careful attention in reminding us of all the things that had occurred up till now in Christ's life <clears throat> as being a fulfillment of something said in the Law and the Prophets. Look at them. <clears throat> They're listed there. In chapter 1, verse 22, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 5, he asked them where the Christ is to be born, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophets had written. In 2.17, it says, <clears throat> then, then what was written through the prophet was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. In chapter 2, verse 23, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, Paul picks this up. This whole verification standard of his authenticity was dependent <clears throat> upon the law and the prophets. To dismiss them would be to remove the basis for belief in his claim of being the Christ. And Paul would use that same reasoning 
with the Corinthians regarding the gospel and the resurrection. He says, Christ died for our sins. Here it is, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 1.10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories would follow. So the law and the prophets validated Jesus. Right? The law and the prophets validated Jesus. And the prophets, <coughs> excuse me, and Jesus validated the law and the prophets in this passage. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To abolish them would be to take away God's amen and his right to say, I told you so. I did a lot of studying different, past, different, uh, different uh, commentators, and one commentator in the Gospel Coalition named David Wenham writes this, the context suggests that the thought is of fulfilling and so establishing. The fact that Jesus is the fulfiller of the law leads us to the practical, therefore, of verse 19. Jesus' followers are to uphold, not to abolish the law either. Well, let's look at the next part. <clears throat> A durable declaration. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is fulfilled. So Jesus now takes the reliability of the law, the scriptures, to an even greater level. Forget the abolishing. We're talking about honoring, trusting, reverencing, even the tiniest and seemingly insignificant part of it. Notice what comparison Jesus uses of something that is observably reliable, the heaven and the earth. We take those for granted as being endurable reference points in life. And you know what? God tells us to do that. In Psalm 96, 10, it says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Proof? Evidence? The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. And Jesus is using this idea of something that's permanent, something that is reliable. <clears throat> and he says, until heaven and earth disappear, this is not going to change. So say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Evidence, the world is firmly established, the heavens and the earth. It cannot be moved. But the real kicker in this is regarding the heavens and the earth. Their reliability is based on the fact that they are under a directive from God. A law that tells them to stay put. Psalm 119, 89, that's 119, 89 through 91 says, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. Well, I need proof. Evidence? It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. I need evidence. You established the earth, I 
and it endures. And then he says this, your laws endure to this day. All things serve you. You try going against God and his laws, you will either, you will prove him right in one way or another. You will be rewarded. You will be warned. You will be warned. It will be tough for you. But your laws endure to this day. Jesus says something very similar in Luke 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So we have the same components as in Matthew passage. We have the law and the prophets, the good news of the kingdom, foretold and having arrived in Christ, and we have the connection of the law and the reliability of the law, as well as the reference to heaven and the earth. There's another thought here of continuity of the law's relevance and jurisdiction. Notice Jesus said, until heaven and earth disappear. The time frame he gives is not his coming and fulfilling the law, but for as long as the heavens and the earth continue to exist. So now let's look at the disciples' dismissal and or adherence to the law. Well, we might, we are pretty good with this reliability and the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, but what Jesus says next is what we choke on. Jesus drills down a little farther and speaks of the commandments found in the law and how we are to view them and keep them. He doesn't seem to exclude anyone or any command in his words when he says anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments so if we know that the least stroke of the law is going to be fulfilled, we also know that the least of these commandments are likewise not to be dismissed as irrelevant. I find the connection between breaking and teaching very significant. You know, we like the saying, do what I say, don't do what I do. But in reality, our actions do speak louder than our words. And so he says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. You know, there's a little bit of difference here, isn't there? You break it. No, you're not just breaking it. You're teaching as well by what you do. In reality, our actions do speak louder than our words. When I disobey, dismiss, and disregard God's commands, I am making a teaching statement to those who watch. I am, in fact, not just making a private statement to God, but I'm making a public statement to others about God. An example might be David <clears throat> when he sinned with Bathsheba. Remember Nathan told him, by doing this, he thought he was clear, by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. And so Jesus says this, you know, you're going to break this? And you're going to, by breaking it, somehow teach it to others? It ain't going to be good. You're not going to be looked up to. You're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But there's another subtle reason why we would teach others to break God's laws. 
We want endorsement and company, right? Romans 1.32 says, Although they knew God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I don't know if you've noticed that in our nation today. We are doing that at an alarming rate. We want to stack the courts in our favor. We want to change the laws to make it legally right. We want to ignore God's law. Get the majority to say it's okay and vilify anyone who would question it. And the church gets pulled into this mess as well. And when we conform to the world, we're doing exactly what Jesus said when he said that if the salt had lost its savor, it's not good for anything. You don't hide your bushel, you don't hide your light under a bush, right? And that's what happens when we start watering down what God has said is right and when we water down what God said is wrong. Oh, how easy it is to brush off something we've done that we, might, we know is wrong as tiny and insignificant. It's the least. And yet it's the little things that bring down the house. It's a little sleep. It's a little slumber. It's a little folding of the hands. It's a little, ah, it's nothing emptiness comes in, the brokenness comes in like a bandit to our nation and to ourselves as well. Well, this little infraction is not winked at by the Lord, nor is it no, unnoticed by those in the kingdom of God. You and I <clears throat> must still be, you and I might still be in the kingdom of God, because it says, you notice how he says that? It'll be least, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So you might be there but you will not be looked up to. You won't be walking around smug or proud for disobedience. On the other hand, there is just as careful attention by the Lord and those in the kingdom to those that obey what God has instructed. The moral law of God will not be ignored, overlooked, or considered irrelevant by those in the kingdom of God, both now or in eternity. Well, that's what he's talking about now. He's talking about Jesus fulfilling the law, the disciples' adherence to the law, and now he's going to do something else. Now about this time, you might think that you're sitting pretty good compared to some other people. And Jesus throws you a real dilemma. He brings into the room, for comparison, of all people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now you probably can't name all 10 of the Ten Commandments in the Decalogue. These guys, they can tell you 600 that are found in the Torah. Or more and he makes Jesus makes this extreme statement that leaves us all outside looking in for I tell you unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven wow these guys were top dog as far as keeping the law's requirements. What a contrast and comparison. We began with Jesus saying he fulfilled the law. We discovered that we are to obey his laws and teaching, and we end with the elite instructors of the law being incapable of any righteousness by their law-keeping efforts to enter the kingdom of God. 
is there any hope for us? And what is Jesus getting at? Isn't obedience to the law intended for the purpose of doing right and being right or righteous? Unless your righteousness exceeds this, you won't enter. Well, surprise, surprise. <clears throat> Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Wait a minute. Unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees, these guys were detail-oriented to the nth degree. And now we find out that you can't keep the law. No one will be declared righteous unless your righteousness exceeds theirs. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So then, are we hopeless? Is there any hope for us? Is there any way to be made right in God's eyes? Yes, there is. Guess what? The law points out my inability, but it also points to the one whose ability can be put to my account. Who is that? The one who fulfilled the law. Because then it goes on. It says, <clears throat> But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets point and testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Believe what? Believe that they fall short of the glory of God, of his standard of perfection, of his holiness. Believe that God's provision of salvation and righteousness are provided and fully accredited in Christ's death and resurrection for those who put their trust in him. And as Nathan pointed out last week in the message on the Beatitudes, these attitudes and characteristics that Jesus lists are not so much something done to obtain a blessing, but rather <clears throat> identify those who are already in God's kingdom. It is true also with regard to the moral law of God. We don't and can't do them to obtain our righteousness. That was done by the one who fulfilled all righteousness on the cross. And yet our lives and our volition engage with all that God has declared to be right in the law. One of the works of God in the new covenant according to Jeremiah 31, 33, is this. I will put my laws in their minds, my law in their minds, and write it on their hearts. And Paul <clears throat> says this in Romans 3, 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. And in Romans 7, 22, he says, For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. 
very similar to the psalmist. Oh, I delight in your law. We ought to as well. Romans 8, 6, 8, 8 verse 6 says this, The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Two different minds. The sinful mind is hostile to God. And then it says this, It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So the implication is if you are a believer controlled by the Spirit of God, then you do do submit to God and to his law. The Pharisee in their self-made righteous adherence to the law were all about their own kingdom, not God's. They were hostile to God, so much so that they even used the law as justification to condemn Jesus to death. In fact, they said that. We have a law, they shouted to Pilate, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Well, unfortunately, they only quoted the part assigned to an imposter, not the part regarding the rightful heir to the throne. If they had done that, they would have been thinking of Psalms 8 where it says kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in your ways let's look at the Pharisee a little bit in Luke 8 18 Luke 18 verse 9 through 11 your righteousness has to exceed or surpass that of the Pharisee it says this in verse 9 of chapter 18 in Luke. <clears throat> to some who were confident in their own righteousness. <clears throat> and when you do that, guess what they, you also do? You look down on everyone else. And you're comparing by the wrong standard. You're not comparing by God's standard. You're not comparing by Christ. You look down on everyone else because you think you're good. Jesus said this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Two contrasts, two different people. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself or to himself. And he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. All we like sin, all we like sheep have gone astray. Right? All have come short of the glory of God. But I'm not like other men. I'm not like other men. Yes, you are. You're just like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, he lists a bunch. And then he says, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I got. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven but he beat himself and said God have mercy on me a sinner what a contrast what the law did to one man and what he did to the other if you were in the class this morning you would have seen the difference right it's either despair or it's pride and the Pharisee was a proud man
It says in the scriptures that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the end, it says, I tell you that this man, this publican, this sinner, this tax collector, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There was another man who was a Pharisee. He said these words, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, he couldn't put a finger on me. I was faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from trying to keep the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. It's exactly what he said in Romans, wasn't it? But now a righteousness from God has been revealed through the law and the prophets. They're pointing to it. And so the question to you and me is today, are you in the kingdom? If you are, you're going to love his law. You're going to express it in, by how you live not in order to become part of the kingdom. That we know we cannot do. Like I said in the video, we don't want to be preaching a gospel of moralism, but we don't want to be doing immoralism either, right? And so God's standard is really important, and, it, and he holds on to it. God has spoken in the past. He doesn't change his mind. God is not like a shifting shadow, James says. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his law, he holds it very firm. Now, there's different aspects to the law. We haven't talked about it. We don't have time to talk about it. Um, but for now, this is the passage that we went through. And I trust that God will use it to help us. Christ's confirmation of the law unthinkable consideration. He didn't come to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. It's a durable declaration. His, his disciples are not to dismiss it as in as nothing. But be careful we don't become ones who depend on the law for our righteousness. The entrance requirements are greater than what we could ever do. And Jesus did that for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have a sure foundation. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other grounds are sinking sand. We thank you for your law that tells us we fall short of the glory of God. We look at it and we say, yes, it's right. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I need this one who fulfilled the law this one who went to the cross and paid for my sins. Father, make us ever more thankful for the sinless, spotless Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Help us to go out into the world and uh, be models, be men who love you. Be those who 
like David after he sinned and he repented, he acknowledged his sin. He said, then I will teach transgressions your ways and they will come. We don't come with pride and cockiness, Lord. We come with humility. So exalt your name today in Jesus' name.